And then they also don't see like my confused face. All right, I disappeared too. Alrighty, I will give just 30 more seconds or so, then I'm gonna try to do the share thing. All right, we are gonna go live in just a second here. Intro. Welcome to the Clinical Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO, we are able to make science more accessible and understandable. All right, everyone, welcome to the September 2022 edition of the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Big thank you again to our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO for making this possible. I'm Rimley Crow, and today I am joined by Dr. Tony Fernandez, Jeff Rollman, and Bill Toon. Um, and we are very excited to have with us the authors from the paper, Dr. Josh Brown and Dr. Frank Guyette. As a reminder, we are reviewing the association of pre-hospital needle decompression with mortality among injured patients requiring emergency chest decompression, which has been published in JAMA Surgery. And as always, this discussion is paired with an article that'll be written by our very own columnist, Dr. Tony Fernandez in EMS World called Journal Watch. So we encourage all of you to go check out those articles on emsworld.com. It'll be under the category of education and training. I want to thank the audience also for joining us today. And as we kick off, I want to remind you, you can use that chat feature on your screen to type in questions and comments, and we'll be bringing those into the conversation as we go. So highly encourage your participation. And with that, I'd like to welcome to the stage our guest of honor, Dr. Frank Guyette and Dr. Josh Brown. Thank you for joining us again. Great to be here. All right, so for some of those who may have missed you on a previous episode, I think it would be great if we could kick off with just a little bit about who you are and maybe even a little on how did you get into EMS research specifically? So my name is Frank Guyette. Uh, I'm uh, an EM and EMS physician uh, at the University of Pittsburgh. And I've been in EMS for 30 years now. So I started out uh, as an EMT. Uh, and then uh, eventually ended up doing uh, EM and an EMS fellowship here at Pitt. Uh, my interest is probably is primarily in pre-hospital resuscitation and trauma resuscitation. And uh, I've had the good fortune of working very closely uh, with uh, my partners here at the University of Pittsburgh. One of the things that we have that's pretty unique is that we don't have uh, strong silos between our acute care medicine team, which is emergency medicine, critical care, and trauma surgery. 
so I've had, uh, and along with that experience, uh, the, the great fortune to work with uh, Dr. Josh Brown, uh, who uh, is himself uh, a, uh, a former recovering paramedic, as it were. And uh, um, Josh, uh, Josh is an expert in uh, dealing with large databases. And uh, I'll let him explain uh, how, he, how he started. Yeah, thanks, Frank. Uh, Josh Brown, I'm a trauma surgeon and critical care uh, physician at University of Pittsburgh as well. But I started off in EMS, got my EMT card in high school and worked my way up to medic and uh, did that for about eight years before uh, medical school rotations forced me to retire. But uh, all of my research is focused on pre-hospital trauma care and, and EMS system development. Um, and really focusing a lot on triage and uh, pre-hospital interventions. Well, thank you both again for being here and congratulations on the publication. It's awesome to see EMS research and JAMA surgery for sure. I think just to remind our audience of what we're talking about. So we're looking at pre-hospital needle decompression, which we know it's a critical procedure for patients with life-threatening pneumothorax. And specifically, this study was looking at whether or not pre-hospital needle decompression is actually associated with lower 24-hour mortality. And so I'm curious, you know, whose idea was it to take on this study and what made you decide to explore this particular research question? Well, you know, I'll, I'll give a shout out to uh, Dan Munchnock, our, our first uh, author, who is a medical student here, but also, you know, has been long involved in EMS, both on the civilian side and as a combat medic. And so, you know, he came to me uh, with with an idea to try to look at pre-hospital needle decompression, and he's very interested in general. It, trying to sort out, you know, what interventions that we do in the field actually make a difference, um, you know, because I think the the literature that's out there, you know, is conflicting and it really depends on the different populations that you might be looking at. So he really came with the idea and then we sat down and started to hash out, you know, how we could look at this in a way that, that overcame some of the limitations of, of what's been done before. We've had, this has kind of been a perpetual question for us, both from the standpoint of, you know, individual service medical directors trying to figure out what's the appropriate use for pre-hospital needle decompression, uh, to also working with um, state protocol committees uh, as well and, and looking at uh, regional and national guidance. Um, one of the, one of the tr things that we have to balance is that obviously there, there is in that right patient population, the patient who has hypoxia or hemodynamic compromise from uh, attention pneumothorax, it is a life-saving intervention. Uh, but at the same time, it's not without risk. And Josh and I uh, have spent many times uh, reviewing uh, spleen biopsies, liver biopsies, uh, subclavian cannulations, intracardiac injections, all kinds of interesting complications as a result of needle decompression. So, um, and, and, you know, you can imagine in our environment where uh, we have limited data, limited ability to assess the patient. Uh, it's not a super common procedure, uh, so the risk of doing it incorrectly is fairly high. Uh, so, you know, how do we how do we focus this? Like, what what can we use to inform our practice? Um, and uh, you know, work like Dr. Brown has done uh, with his team of folks uh, is going to help drive the science that allows us to build 
um, inform position statements so that we can tell uh, EMS medical directors, service and operations directors, and uh, paramedics how best uh, to uh, apply the therapy. Absolutely, and I think you all took a really novel approach to this, and you mentioned some of those limitations, and uh, like you said, it's a high-risk, low-frequency procedure, and so knowing whether or not what we did makes a difference, if you were looking at just one agency, that could take a really long time to get enough data to actually be able to say whether or not the treatment mattered. Um, and you know, we can go on for days about random variation and all of that, but I won't steal any of Tony's thunder. Uh, one other point that you mentioned, Frank, that I wanna pull out is about the state protocols. So could you give just a little bit of background on how EMS state protocols work in Pennsylvania? Sure, so uh, we have statewide protocols. So there is only one set of protocols uh, for uh, the state of Pennsylvania and they, are, they build on each other. So there is a BLS protocol that all pre-hospital providers, including myself uh, as a physician, essentially have to follow. And then above that, uh, there is an ALS protocol that adds scope of practice. There's a critical care protocol that sits above the ALS protocol. Uh, and there are there is a group of um, medical directors uh, that run that oversee each region of the state that form a MAC, a medical advisory committee, and they review those protocols yearly with the state medical director, uh, Dr. Doug Kupis, and they make recommendations to the Bureau of EMS. And the Bureau of EMS is the political arm of, of EMS in the state of Pennsylvania, as it were, and ultimately they make the decisions. Um, they're very differential to the physicians, as you can imagine. Uh, but, um, you know, and part of the problem is for something like this, for needle decompression, there isn't good data. So a lot of these decisions are made on uh, based on consensus or what sounds good at the time. Uh, so, um, you know, it, it's great to be able to identify these things as gaps in the knowledge of EMS and then have really uh, adept uh, researchers like Josh attack the problem. Absolutely, and, and this data, cell, data set lends itself well to that. So I know people are interested in this topic and they're gonna wanna be chomping at the bit to get to the results, but I am gonna invite Dr. Tony Fernandez to come in because some really interesting methods were used to overcome some of the really common limitations we see when we're dealing with a critically injured population. So Tony, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, Emily, and <clears throat> I wanna Welcome the authors again and say thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I, I really like this study and I'm excited to talk to you about it. Um, so one of the first things I, I found was really great about your study was your your study period was over 20 years. So between January 1st, uh, 2000 to March 18th, 2020. Um, and you collected data from the Pennsylvania Trauma Outcome Study database. I, that's that's a wealth of data and what a great resource. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, that database? Yeah, sure. So our the PTOS database you know comes from the Pennsylvania Trauma Systems Foundation, which is the trauma center and system accrediting body in Pennsylvania. And you know, having you know been a, a couple of different places and used a lot of these large registries, I have to say that the PTOS data, which is essentially you know, all of the trauma centers in Pennsylvania are required for accreditation to contribute data. And so um, it's one of the, the highest quality databases I've seen uh, in terms of trauma registries and, and both, you know, the breadth of data available to you, 
uh, as well as you know, the quality and in terms of completeness of the data and you know, data that has uh, good quality checks and you know we don't have um, GCSs of one and, and those types of issues that you frequently run into with some of the other registries. Yeah, <clears throat> what, what, what a great resource to have. And you said it was a statewide trauma registry for 44 trauma centers and over 20 years of data, that is just fantastic. Um, so let's move a little bit into your study. Um, you had your patients, they were eligible for inclusion if they were 16 years of older and uh, transported from the scene and you excluded burns uh, and folks who were dead on arrival. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the decision-making for your inclusion and exclusion criteria? Yeah, so for Pennsylvania, most of the adult trauma centers um, you know, will take patients um, 16 and older. And so you know, we were focusing on the adult trauma population. Um, you know, and then certainly, you know, we, the burn patients and the, those with combined burn and trauma, you know, we often think of those as a different population and, and unique needs. So we will typically, um, you know, exclude those those types of patients. Um, it's also pretty common, and, and you know, we may get to it later. You know, we excluded the dead on arrival patients, you know, and especially with needle decompression and chest tubes, you know, kind of in the first 15 minutes you know, those people are often getting those empirically placed. And so, you know, we wanted to at least analyze the data, you know, excluding those, because a lot of times, you you know, you're not going to be able to reverse that outcome. But we did go back and include those as a sensitivity analysis to make sure there wasn't some bias introduced by that decision. Yeah, and I thought that was really wise, and we will absolutely get to that. Um, but before we do, let's talk about your primary outcome. This was 24-hour mortality. Um, and you did some comparisons uh, for you compared folks who got pre-hospital needle decompression to a comparison group where they received a chest tube within 15 minutes of arrival on scene. Um, and you stated that this was basically a proxy because you couldn't identify tension pneumothorax in the field. And I thought this was a really good decision. Um, and can you walk us through, I'm sure that that wasn't something that uh, was one conversation between your authors. Can you walk us through kind of how you came to that decision to with the 15 minutes after arrival? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, we really, when we started to look at the literature and we, we were thinking about how to study this in a way that added something new to the, to what was out there. Um, you know, first we said, well, we really want to look at outcomes because there are a lot of descriptive studies that, that go into the nitty gritty details. And we knew that, you know, we'd have a pretty granular data set, but we weren't going to have the, you know, the indications and a lot of the, you know, uh, anatomical placement and some of those things. So we said, let's look at the outcomes because, you know, in the world that I live in, you know, as Frank was mentioning, you know, we see a lot of patients that come in where either the decompression, you know, didn't make it into the chest or there were complications. And so, so the, from the trauma surgery community, a lot of people question, should we even be doing this? Should we just get rid of this? And so he said, let's look at outcomes because, you know, our sort of bias was that this made a difference uh, in the right patients. And then we said, okay, if everything's sort of descriptive, nobody had a comparison group. And so we had to, to come up with a group that we said, 
those patients would have potentially benefited if you had decompressed them in the field. And so we did go back and forth and we looked at some different thresholds of, you know, what's, you know, an emergency chest tube in the trauma bay? What's that time frame really look like um, to come up with, you know, the idea that, you know, this group could have been decompressed in the field and potentially benefited. And, um, you know, kind of thinking about my practice and then looking at the data itself, you know, is where we landed on 15 minutes and tried to, you know, even use some of our sensitivity analysis to make sure that that ended up being an appropriate threshold. Yeah, again, just really great decision-making. And so we talked a little bit about um, the Pennsylvania Trauma Outcome Study Database. and. As with all databases, including really large data sets, um, there were some issues with missing data. And you did some imputation, uh, which, which I think um, is, is, it definitely is a validated uh, method. And I think it's um, really worthwhile, particularly when you have some high rates of missingness. Um, but you then compared your, your results from your imputed data to your complete case analysis, um, which I thought was also really interesting. Can you walk us through kind of the Again, our audience largely is folks who are getting interested in research and we want to we want to kind of foster that a little bit. So can you walk us through some of the steps to you took to impute and why you compared uh, again to your complete case set? Yeah, so you um, the the reason that we decided to do the imputation and, and has really become you know our lab sort of standard approach is because with all of these registries, you know, you'll have patients where the data is just not there. It didn't get recorded or it was recorded as some, you know, value that was clearly, you know, super physiologic that is not, you know, a valid value. And so you end up dropping those. But then, you know, your approach is if you want to continue to analyze the data, you end up having to throw all of those patients out who often contain, you know, valid data that can be useful information to the study or come up with a way to include them uh, and a couple of different options. You know, a common one is a what people call it a missing indicator approach where you simply replace that missing value with a unique value that, that kind of tells you know, your uh, software that you, this is a separate group because they're missing the data. Another way, and especially when we're looking at things like the vital signs, you know, because there's such a wide range, we like to use the imputation approach where you essentially um, build another model that predicts that missing value. So if you're looking at their blood pressure, it will look at uh, their survival, their other vital signs and say, based on other patients who aren't missing this data, we would predict or estimate the blood pressure is 110 you know, 60 if the patient died and had, you know, really high heart rate. And so you can come up with a an educated estimation of those values. And you do that for, you know, multiple times, hence the multiple imputation, because, you know, we know that that's just a, an estimation. And so you then get a range of predicted values that you can use and increase the reliability without having to throw out all of those patients. The reason we always will compare our imputed data to the complete case, you know, one is we also want to make sure that you to check our models that we specify for the imputation that that their models are doing a reasonable job and that we don't get some wildly different answer in our imputed and our complete case. And also to be you know, frank, there's a, a wide 
variety of statistical expertise among people reviewing the studies. And it's not uncommon that, that our group runs up against, you know, the comment, you're just making up data. And, and while you know, people have written their own uh, studies to show that this approach is validated, um, you know, we often will include the complete case to show you know, some of those folks who are less familiar that you know, this is a valid approach and that we get a, a very similar answer um, while being able to maintain the power of the study and not throw those patients out. Vetted reviewer number three, right? Um, <clears throat> yeah, and so we talked about the wealth of your data set and you were able to adjust for a whole host of uh, independent variables and um, demographics, uh, mechanism, injury severity score, pre-hospital times. Uh, I, I won't name them all because you had uh, just a whole host of them. Um, abbreviated injury severity score, uh, you looked at emergent uh, craniotomies and the like, where that you were able to adjust for a whole host of really important variables. Were there any, was there anything that you would have liked to adjust for that wasn't available in your data set? I think, that, you know, the things that we always uh, wish we had, you know, from these registries are serial vital signs in the field. Um, you know, essentially most registries get you one set of pre-hospital vital sign and then one set of vital signs when you get to the trauma bay. And so, you know, using that over something like an administrative data set based on insurance diagnosis and, and billing, you is far superior to have even that little bit of clinical information, but to be able to look at trends over time would re really be nice um, in terms of things that we, you know, on our wish list for adjustment. Yep, yeah. I mean, yep. totally see yep. that. Yeah. Please. Oh, I'm sorry, Tony. I was just gonna say, the other thing that we typically don't have at a PTOS is, uh, and this goes back to what Remley was saying about this being a, you know, low frequency, high consequence event, is that we don't know the we don't know much about the provider who did the procedure, right? So we we don't know how much experience they have. We don't know if they were um, an ALS uh, provider or if they were a CCT provider. Um, so it and there are there are definitely biases in this in this data set based on that, right? So we know our CCT providers are much more likely to place needle decompressions, um, for instance. So uh, you know there. It's a really wonderful res registry, as you pointed out, but it, it definitely has its limitations. Yeah, and and they all do. I think that um, your study definitely highlights the uh, the wealth of data in this registry, and what a, what a great resource it will be. Um, so let's let's get into. We we alluded to some of your sensitivity analyses earlier, and um, you did a whole host of them to address your biases, and I, I think that uh, they they were really well thought out. Um, I'm gonna. I'm going to ask you to walk us through these, some of these, uh, not in the greatest detail, because of course folks are chomping at the bit to get to your results. But um, <laughs> we we looked at uh, you looked at patients who you excluded patients who died in the ED to get rid of patients um, who were in extremis. Um, you also did a sensitivity analysis where you excluded severe head injuries. Um, you excluded uh, severe chest injuries and in, in different uh, sensitivity analyses, and then we talked about your, your dead-on arrivals. Um, that what 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 made you go through such lengths to do each one of these different sensitivity analyses? 
Well, I, you know, I think part of it, you know, when we were talking uh, about the purchase study and if we're looking at something like mortality, we really wanted to make sure that if we, you know, end up finding, which we did, that, it, that there was an association with, with reduced mortality, that there we weren't finding some spurious association. So we actually really sat down and spent a lot of time thinking about what are all the scenarios where, you know, are an, primary results could be due to something else or you know that you, you could say well you know if it's patients there's more patients with a traumatic brain injury those patients you know, would die anyway and this wasn't really going to help them and so um you know we went through a bunch of different scenarios in our head and amongst the author group to kind of say okay you know if they didn't have a pneumothorax you know you know why include those patients or, you know, if it was that patient that came in an arrest, you know, we put in bilateral chest tubes of those patients. So, you know, is that really the patient population that we want to focus on? So uh, we, we went to great pains, you know, to really make sure that, that what we found was going to be, you know, in line with what we think the, the reality is. And Tony, yeah, and for, please. I, I was just going to say for some of your listeners, you know, the, what we really think about in terms of the gold standard of a study of information that we have coming to us is a randomized controlled trial, is a, is a trial where all these biases are just are just equally distributed between the two arms by, by random chance. And, you know, even better than a randomized controlled trial is a systematic review of a bunch of randomized controlled trials. And then we know that's true, right? That's, that's got to be the, the, the answer. Um, but there are, you know, we're never going to be able to do an RCT of needle decompression for traumatic uh, tension pneumothorax. So, you know, Dr. Brown has built this toolbox uh, over the last decade of all these amazing statistical tools that can address each one of these biases. So you mentioned the, the missingness. So he has he has mice or multiple imputation. Uh, he you mentioned uh, um, uh, having not being able to apply randomness to this. So he, I think one of the things you're going to ask him about maybe is, is his instrument variable, right? Um, but, uh, you know, then, then these other analyses where he, where he does all these different sensitivity analyses, uh, they're all known biases. And if we can do an analysis and we can compare, uh, the, 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 the results of the data set with and without that known bias and the answer is the same, then it's not, a, it's not as quite as good as getting to an RCT, but it's close. Uh, and, you know, Josh has made a career out of, out of doing this really, really well. I love that. What a great explanation. Um, and I want to jump in there because, you know, the RCT thing. I love that you said that. And I think it's a very important point. Just because we see RCT doesn't always mean that it was done well and that it's free from bias. So in this case, having a giant study with a lot of different analyses that were aimed to quantify bias can give us a degree of certainty that, you know, we don't necessarily see just because somebody called something an RCT. So it's, it's important to critically read and think about study setting in particular. This is a real world setting. It reflects what we know and we'll see that in the results and that they found an appropriate comparator group. And I was talking with the authors before the show. I was doing an analysis, similar vein, looking at, you know, does what we do in the pre-hospital setting make a difference? And if I just looked at raw numbers, it looked like needle decompression kills everybody. There's like a five times higher mortality. But people who don't need needle decompression tend to be a little less sick than those who do. It would be saying, like, if I just looked at all of the patients in my data set and said, the ones that got AEDs, like 90% of them die. I don't think we should be using that anymore. 
but finding that group who would have benefited from that procedure is really important. So a couple of points I just wanted to give some more kudos on. Yeah, a lot of great decisions uh, in your study design. And before we get to your results, which are infinitely interesting, I want to open it up to our other panelists to see if they have any other uh, questions or comments as they relate to your methods. Jeff. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today, both of you, and sharing this excellent work as we're talking about really uh, rigorous methods trying to make sense out of this difficult uh, data that we have here. So before we go into the results, I was just wondering if you could give us a little bit more context, since we do have paramedics, paramedic students from all over the country, all over the world that probably have protocols that could be quite different from Pennsylvania protocols. So I know uh, in Pennsylvania, it's only ALS providers, so paramedics, nurses, pre-hospital physicians that would be doing this. Some other places might be EMTs, for example. But um, over this 20-year span, did the protocols change much? And also, I was wondering how much discretion uh, would you say that paramedics have in utilizing this procedure? Some jurisdictions, for example, you know, the blood pressure has to be below a certain number and you need certain, you know, rigid criteria, whereas others allow for much more discretion and that could definitely affect how often this relatively low frequency procedure is used. So if you could just talk a little bit about that, I think that'd be helpful for all of our listeners. Thank you. Yeah, so the state protocol is pretty liberal with respect to when you can apply it. So if you, it, it essentially, states that if you if you think the patient uh, has attention pneumothorax that you can uh, that an ALS provider can do a, a decompression um, and it is something that is because it it is a low frequency high consequence event it is something that uh, our paramedics in the state of Pennsylvania are trained on yearly uh, it's one of the required uh, proficiencies so they have to demonstrate the skill on a mannequin in front of their uh, medical director or a service training officer every year um, the, there's been pretty good consistency over that 20 year period with respect to the protocol itself. Probably the biggest variation is that it's gotten a little bit more liberal, I'd say a little bit more liberal in terms of where you could place the, uh, the needle decompression. Um, and there's been a, a, probably a, a lot of debate, uh, over what the right, uh, location is for the decompression, but, um, that is where the discretion is given to the paramedic. Uh, if, they both uh, the uh, fourth, third or fourth intercostal space at the uh, mid axillary or anterior axillary line and the second uh, mid clavicular space uh, are fair game. Um, and uh, we, we ourselves have changed this uh, a few times because of uh, either various complications that we've seen or new data. Uh, and, and I say new data, but uh, that being uh, primarily out of the military, which again, you have to take with a little bit of uh, context because the, you know, the data of the military um, looking at uh, location and needle size based on you know, very healthy 19 and 20 year old men with you know, I don't know, big pec muscles uh, is different than you know, your average Pennsylvanian. So um, I, you know, I, I think I think that's part of the reason to have that discretion is because our population, uh, it's, it's not really well-defined in the literature and our population probably differs a lot from where most of the literature has come from in the military. 
I think maybe the, the other big change that, that probably came around during the study period is the, the actual technology of what we're decompressing people with. You know, when I was doing this in the you know 2010s, I was using a 14 gauge angiocath, and that was really the only thing available. And now, you know, we have the you know eight gauge, eight centimeter, you know, the the bigger catheters, you know, that were designed to, you know, overcome the problem of, you know, we weren't making it into the prolo cavity, the catheters were kinking. And now, you know, we do see some different types of complications of, you know, uh, I think the week that this got accepted, I did astronomy to repair a, a decompression in someone's left atrium. So, you know, I think uh, you there uh, the, there's been some transition in terms of our technology and what we use that um, you know may help you decide what what kind of sites you want to use and what the you know the risk of those complications may be. I think it's an important point, like having the standardized protocol there is key. Also in the study, it reduces some of the variability. Meanwhile, if you come to my state, Texas, you know I have to say the words delegated practice, where we can do a lot of different things depending on what the medical director gives permission to do. So I, I like for the research purposes that this study was a little bit more, more controlled in the sense that there would be less variability. Congratulations, amazing. Uh, I'm teaching PHTLS right now today in Morocco. And we talked about this study with a group of physicians and nurses that are doing the skill. I, I'm, I, I'm curious, because I do wanna get to the results, just because you mentioned location, 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 and size of the needle and length of the needle have been all these kind of variables that we wondered about. Did you do a sub-analysis to see if there was more mortality with one uh, location versus another? That's, that's definitely one of the main limitations and probably would, would be on the wish list. They didn't document where they put the needle. Um, so, you know, I think that is, you know, when we're thinking about this to study, you know, that's why we really we said, okay, we're gonna have to, we're gonna focus on outcome. Does this make a difference? Because I think, you know, now that we have some evidence that that I, you know, think favors doing this, then then it comes down to what are the indications, you know, where do we put this, you know? Because again, when I was doing this with a little angiocath, I think the second intercostal space was very safe. Uh, now that you're using a much bigger needle. Um, you're getting so close to some high value real estate. And so rethinking those those types of things, I think is the next step. Yeah, although with, with that angiocap, it, it probably just didn't work most of the time, so. So if anything, these estimates are probably conservative and set us up for the next step, which is find you know, best practice within a practice. Now, I would love to talk about methods forever and ever, but I think there will be mutiny if I don't go into the results. <laughs> so let's chat about what you all found. Uh, first of all, there were over 400,000 trauma patients in the study period, and you all found out that pre-hospital needle decompression actually is one of those rare procedures with high criticality. Uh, so it looked like there was less than 1% of those patients received pre-hospital needle decompression throughout the 20-year study period. And I, I like figure one here I put up on the screen. It shows that it, it didn't really fluctuate that much. And I'd like to hear from you all, why was it important to visualize this over time with the study? Well, I think, you know, one of the things you, 
as we talked about, you know, there's a benefit to having a long study with a lot of patients, but you know, it can also you know, introduce bias as we talked about, you know, if practice change significant over time, or if you know, as over time we've gotten better, certainly in taking care of trauma patients in general and different things that have come about, like our one-to-one -one transfusion, we know improves mortality. So, you know, if we didn't really look at how this changed over time and also try to incorporate some of those things into our models, then we may just be seeing that, you know, if we were decompressing more later on, that may actually be an artifact of just better trauma care over time. Yeah, and, and you did some analyses also to control for that aspect of things change over time. Hopefully we get better over time. Um, but I, I, I thought it was interesting to see it didn't change that much. And speaking of the numbers, when we dig in here, we see that there were 8,000, about 8,500 patients included who either had pre-hospital needle decompression or a chest tube placed in the hospital. Um, and it was interesting, the first like, major finding that I took away is what percentage received the pre-hospital needle decompression. So that was about 11% of patients we think were potentially eligible in the pre-hospital setting. Um, was that number what you all expected or would you have expected higher or lower? And do you think that number continues today? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we it's one of the things that concerns me most about uh, this from a, the standpoint of medical direction and, and medical policy. Uh, is that there are lots of patients, I think, and, and you know, Josh maybe can add some commentary on this from the trauma surgeon's perspective, where we as pre-hospital providers get on scene and we see this trauma patient who's in extremis. Um, maybe they're hypoperfused, uh, maybe they're hypoxic, maybe they're altered. And, you know, because of, uh, you know, the last 50 years of, of ingrained training, the first thing we do is manage the airway. So we go ahead and, you know, we, we intubate this person and then their blood pressure's worse, their SATs aren't any better, and then we discover, oh, they have attention. And then uh, if, if that's recognized and they get needle decompressed, then, then all the better. But I think it's pretty infrequent um, that uh, pre-hospital providers who are faced with a polytrauma patient think, ooh, tension pneumothorax first. And um, it's often, you know, although we, we teach, you know, CAB and we, uh, and we teach uh, various different uh, mnemonics now to remember to try to include uh, um, assessment for tension pneumothorax earlier in the algorithm, I think it's really hard to break, uh, you know, those decades of ingrained training. Um, and because it's a, it's a procedure that most providers, I'd say, are relatively uncomfortable with because they just don't do it frequently, um, that uh, it, it may get deferred until they get into the trauma center. Uh, and it goes to Josh's outcome, of, or sorry, the, Josh's comparative group of chest tube within 15 minutes. These are, these are people who have hemodynamic compromise or uh, profound hypoxia as a result of their, their pneumothorax. Because most of the folks who just have the, you know, the little ditzel 10 or 15 percent uh, pneumothorax are either not going to get a chest tube at all, or they won't get one until later when it can be done electively. I think, you know, the thing that I emphasize to our, you know, trainees and when I go out and talk to the MS folks, you know, in trauma, we, we have a mindset of doing things that are both diagnostic and therapeutic. And, you know, I don't have to think about it when I have a patient extremis, 
we put in a chest tube and then I move on. And if it fixes it, great. And if it, that's not it, then I don't have to worry about tension uh, anymore. And I move on to the next thing that might be killing my patient. And so I think, you know, uh, as Frank mentioned, you know, it, people don't do it as commonly, they may not feel as comfortable. So I think that mindset, you know, is not as common or approach, um, you know, globally in the EMS community. Absolutely. And I think that takes us nicely into table one, because I call this the, the gut check table, if you will. So this is always the characteristics of who was in the sample and who was who we compared. So first thing I, I would look at if you know, I'm approaching a paper is, well, does the epidemiology kind of line up with the patients that I would expect to be getting a pre-hospital needle decompression or a chest tube in the hospital? It's all that you all walk us through were the characteristics consistent with what we know to be the the patients that should be eligible for this procedure? I think overall, you know, uh, these do look like a sick cohort of patients. And, you know, if you look at things now, the ISS, which stands for the Injury Severity Score, right, this is a, a research tool. Right? I, I don't stand in the trauma bay and say, what's this guy's ISS? Um, no. But, you know, it's a, a pretty consistent tool that ranges between 1 and 75. We generally use a cutoff of 15 to suggest the patient's severely injured. And so you can see it's a pretty sick population of patients. Um, 24, I think 26 was the median for those who can't see the tables. So yeah, I think the things that, that sort of stood out to me that were a little surprising was the you know, our total transport times. You know, we're on the order of 30 to 45 minutes and the number uh, proportion of patients who are blunt injury you know, in the decompression or 70%. So, you know, I think a lot of us often think of the, you know, the gunshot wound, you know, shot around the core from the trauma center who has a, you know, a big tension uh, from that. But, you know, I think this ended up being a population of blunt poly trauma patients uh, who, who are likely benefiting from this with longer transport times. Absolutely. And I wonder if that also plays into the recognition and like, is this the right procedure I should do in the pre-hospital setting as well? Um, another key piece here that I pulled out is you mentioned earlier the, the dogma around trauma education and around you know, CAB and all of these things. There's another one that comes up often and that's the load and go mindset, right? With trauma, we, there's nothing we can do. We just have to go to the hospital as fast as we can. Vitamin D, diesel, let's go. But the question I would have is, okay, well, how long does doing this prolong the EMS interval, if at all, and you know, particularly scene time would be of interest if we're going to try to do this on scene before moving versus this is also a procedure you could probably do in route. Uh, but we take a look at the, the median scene time was 17 minutes in the group that did get pre-hospital needle decompression versus 13 minutes in the other group. So it, do we think that that time is statistically relevant, probably in a big data set, clinically relevant, we might have an argument there. Um, but I think it's interesting because we have that mindset of 10 minutes. It has to be 10 minutes on scene and get out. Uh, what are your all thoughts around you know, scene times and doing this procedure on scene versus in transport? Yeah, I think I think uh, it, it is, it, it is certainly something that you can do uh, in transport. But at the same time, I think that if you're doing it right uh, at your primary assessment, you're doing it while you're on scene before you start moving. Um, and you know, if it in this case, you know, it, it might pretend that we added four minutes 
to do the procedure. But if you look at it too, the, the patients were also much more likely to get intubated. They were much more likely to have other interventions. Uh, so part of it, uh, meaning the people that got preosteal needle decompressions versus the emergent tube thoracostomies. So part of it might also, again, reflect on the provider, right? If the provider was going to do a, a, a pre-hospital needle decompression, uh, then that might be somebody who is maybe a bit more aggressive or has a, a bigger toolkit. Absolutely. I think, you know, and some of our upcoming projects that, that uh, Frank and I have really been talking about is sorting out how long does it to take to do a decompression, to intubate somebody on scene, and which of those actually matters. And so, you know, we're looking at the different data sets that we can use to get really granular data about that uh, and link that to outcomes and try to start to parse out. You know, again, when I was doing this, it was very dogmatic um, and it was a one size fits all. And I, you know, as I've uh, gone through my career, I really feel like that is doing an injustice to EMS clinicians um, and that we really can um, find the different populations and different procedures and who's going to benefit from what and really tailor the care that we deliver in the field. Because, I, you know, time and time again, I think uh, we've been able to show that it makes a big difference in outcomes. The, the thing that I, I, the way I would explain it to people is if you're, you know, if you're playing, uh, you know, one of those fighting games in Nintendo and you see like the life bar kind of, you know, oh, yeah. getting smaller and smaller and, uh, you know, you do one of these procedures, right, that kind of extends the time again. And we, we definitely saw that in our pamper trial with, with blood. So blood products essentially negated the detrimental effect of longer on, t on scene time. And we don't have the granularity in this study to show that that's true for needle uh, decompression, but I think that's that's part of the part of the questions that Josh and I are trying to answer. Can we identify those procedures that make a difference? That where uh, when you're looking at risk-benefit ratio for the patient, you should waste time, you know, using that kind of uh, rhetorically, but you should take the time on scene to perform that life-saving intervention because that will buy you more time to get definitive, to definitive care. As soon as we figure out what buys you more hearts, then we're in. That's right. Cats, cats have them. I had a, a quick question for you. Uh, again, just enamored with this whole concept and how many were missed and that 11% of, of patients that really got it versus you know 89% that might have needed it. And I wondered about the the story around intubation and flight medics, because clearly the pile here almost was um, uh, equal in terms of helicopter versus ground. And it's it's obscured here from my screen, but it's 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 a fairly good distribution between ground and, and helicopter. Did did you uh, kind of look into the fact that maybe those those patients that were flown and were intubated take up a lot of those intubated patients, or is it really well distributed across both ground and uh, air air methods? So, you know, we you know we certainly um, stratified too, you know, in terms of our outcome analysis, looking at the air versus ground, and I think you know this it speaks to. Um, what Frank had mentioned earlier about, you know, probably our critical care 
transport uh, clinicians are going to be a more aggressive group around this. And so they did tend to have be intubated a little more frequently. But again, too, I guess the, the other thing um, is background in Pennsylvania is that the you know ground ALS medic as of now cannot RSI patients. And so that's for critical care transport um, medics only. And so that also plays into uh, probably the numbers and the distribution that we saw. Absolutely. All right. Now I feel like we need the, the drum roll. But before I move off of the slide, the one thing I do want to highlight is just how sick of a cohort this is. When you look at the 24-hour mortality, you see you know, a mortality rate of 46% in one group and 35% in the other group. So that, that's a high number overall to start with. Yeah, Jeff, average in the state of Pennsylvania for trauma patients, 4%. 4%. Yeah, so that tells you this cohort is special again and really speaks to that, how necessary it was to find the appropriate control group. Jeff. Sure, just wanted to add in one more thing um, along the lines of what Dave was talking about in terms of flight paramedics uh, versus ground, since we see that most of these uh, were performed a bit more actually by helicopter EMS. So I was wondering the role, what you think of POCUS, point of care ultrasound, um, that it's something that we know definitely we shouldn't necessarily be waiting. If we suspect tension pneumothorax, definitely go ahead and treat it. But it also provide much more definitive uh, diagnosis and ground EMS, many, I mean, a few places have it, but most do not but it's much more prevalent in that flight setting. How much do you think um, ultrasound potentially played a role in what we're looking at? Almost none in this cohort, uh, because even, even though the, uh, some of our helicopter services have started to embrace uh, ultrasound more recently, uh, over the vast majority of this study period, they, no one had it. Yeah, and I, that being said, you know, I think, as again, as we kind of look forward to, okay, if this makes a difference, how do we optimize the implementation and execution of this? You know, certainly has a potential role. Though I, uh, you know, will defer to Frank because I know he uh, has the task of training and making sure that everyone remains competent in yet another, uh, you know, skill like that. And so th those are some of the logistical challenges that you. Um, people would face to implement that as a as a, an option. Absolutely, and something to watch for in the future studies as well. All right, the moment we've been waiting for, I feel like we need a drum roll for this next slide because it really does show the consistency of the results that you all found after we talked about all the different ways of controlling and the propensity analyses and the instrumental variable analysis. And so walk us through, What's your key takeaway looking at all of these adjusted odds ratios for 24-hour mortality? Yeah, I think you know for us as these you know start to roll in, we were impressed with how remarkably consistent the effect size was, and you know it really was around a you know a, a 25% relative uh, decrease in 24-hour mortality. And so again, you know as we thought about this being able to look at all these different sensitivity analysis, 
taking different analytical approaches by matching patients and using the instrumental variable to try to suss out any other biases and then getting the same answer over and over really raised our confidence that we were seeing um, a true effect that was associated with the needle decompression and not you know some other characteristic of again the EMS provider or clinician or the agency you know and one of the reasons that we you know did another matching within the same agency so everyone had to be treated so there wasn't a proxy of you know uh, our stat medevac helicopters are more aggressive about doing this and so that you were seeing some uh, bias there yeah and th this effect size is enormous uh you know th we don't you don't see this in medicine right and when we do you know remley you you know this better than anybody when when we look at interventions to try to improve mortality of patients we're fighting for fractions of a percent in most interventions and to have something that could have the potential now granted only for a small subset of trauma patients but still in that right cohort could reduce their mortality by 20 percent or more is really unheard of absolutely and for those who might be looking at this table and you know it's big scary numbers and what is an AOR. Let's talk about that just a little bit. So we're talking about an adjusted odds ratio here. And an odds ratio of one means that there was no difference between the pre-hospital needle decompression and it, having it later in the hospital. Um, but what we're seeing here is that all of these odds ratios are under one, which means that having the pre-hospital procedure was associated with less mortality, le lower odds of mortality. Um, so what we're saying, how did we get to the 25% lower? All we did is take one minus that 0.75, and that tells us what that reduction is. And again, that is a huge difference in odds ratio. And then a couple of other things that I think are really important around this is, one, we saw how high the mortality rate is in this population to start with. So it's not like we're talking about fractions of percentages and fractions of people. This is a large number of people that can be saved with this procedure. Um, and when you just look at even the raw numbers, I always get cautious, and Josh loves big data as much as I do. In big data, you're always going to see a statistical difference, but we see a 10 percentage point difference in that mortality rate. And that is unheard of. You know, we're fighting for those fractions of a percentage that Frank mentioned. I'm super now, curious uh, if how that fits with the conversation around number needed to treat number needed to harm and if that's even uh, uh able to be calculated in this setting was that a, would that be an appropriate thing or yeah well you can you will we have to do a little bit of transformation because your number needed to treat, you really need to get your absolute mortality reduction. And remember, this is a relative, uh, but you can uh, make some <laughs> of those transformations and come up with an, a number needed to treat, you know, based on the risk adjusted uh, survival differences. And, you know, uh, with, you know we, we certainly could, you know, do that at some point. And I think it would be a, a pretty impressive number for this intervention. Yeah, which should also give providers reassurance that although it is not the procedure is not without risk, uh, the benefits should outweigh the harm. Um, the you know <clears throat> the other thing from again just from a, a a policy standpoint, if we encourage the use of this, if we liberalize the policies for the use of this, then we will have more complications, and that delta between the number needed to treat and the number needed to harm will get smaller. But um, this is such a huge effect size that I think 
we would be, as a somebody who tries to make protocols or make policy around EMS, not only should we be, this tells me that one, we should, yes, encourage people to do this procedure in the right study population, but in addition to that, we should invest in dollars and time and manpower to train people to do this right. Yeah. It's fascinating to me, both from an educational standpoint that people are afraid to do it and uh, you know you train with it but it's it's hard you really almost always do it in extremists the patient really has to be extremely hypotensive and so part of the paper was really interesting for me sorry for the noise uh that that um you actually can determine that 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 difficulty breathing may be just enough to say i see unequal chest rise i see difficulty and and let's do it and I have to say, my students, even my partners, were very hesitant to do it, even with the absolute most blatant signs and uh, Im immediate improvement. They were just very afraid to do the procedure in real life. So um, I think getting over some of that fear may be a, a bit more of a challenge than one would, than one thinks. Um, it's a bit like cardioversion. You just kind of want to not do that because, oh, maybe it'll do things, it'll make things worse. Yeah. And, and Dave, the corollary. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you're right. You know, I think we all, you know, across any uh, practice of medicine, really feel that like we don't want to hurt our patients and that do no harm. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of that comes with it. But I think too, one of the consequences of of investing in the training and liberalizing this is that people will be doing it more and feel more comfortable and and you know, as you do it more often, your rate of complications go down. And so, you know, the downsides get smaller uh, with a potential big upside. And Dave, I, I loved your description too of the patient who's, you know, just, you know, short of breath, maybe a little hypoxic, maybe has a little bit increased respiratory effort, some asymmetric lung sounds, because I think what most of us would do as, as field providers is that we'd be more apt to intubate that patient than we would be to decompress them. And we're not only doing the wrong intervention, but we're exposing them to greater harm by doing that. And if you, to your point, if you decompress them, you may not have to intubate. Yeah, and and for those of us who are hacks at at walking by X-rays, that you know, looking over the shoulder of the physician who's in the trauma center, going, "Wow, there's actually no pneumothorax," and and I just did something that just hurt, you know, like there, I did it wrong because you can't see it anymore. And it, it wasn't until, I don't know, probably 20 years into my career after having done a few thinking I, this was the terrible time to do it, that that a physician said, no, actually, I'll never see whether you did it right or wrong because it's, it's expanded this way where you're back to normal. You did a good job. And I thought, really? Oh, OK, well, then I'm not as afraid to do it next time. But it's a scary thing to think, well, may, maybe I was wrong. It looks like both lungs are right up there. It, it is, you know, and I, the other thing that's changed, I think, is that when Josh and I were, you know, earlier in our training, uh, if, you know, the, the mantra was, if you got a needle decompression, you got a chest tube. And that's just not true anymore. If you get a needle decompression and then the residual pneumothorax is small and the lung is re-expanded and the patient's not on positive pressure, they may not need a chest tube. In fact, you may have saved them from an intubation and, you know, days in the ICU and tons of complications. Absolutely. I, love I know this we're at time. It's just a great study. You guys, 
This is so cool. Uh, you know, I, I hope that uh, Remley and, and Tony pick this up and, and uh, replicate it in the uh, ESO database with, you know, with those, these, these same techniques because uh, it's, it's really interesting to kind of extrapolate on a bigger uh, size, a sample size, and, uh, and hopefully do some tighter controls of, of maybe location and needle size, needle length, uh, you know, body weight, body mass, it might be very interesting. So, uh, but super cool. Really, thank you. We're always happy to collaborate, Remley. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in. Count me in. Um, and more exciting work coming down the line with uh, trauma registry linkage to EMS data as well, which has been a challenge and can definitely give us some more uh, insight into not just this particular intervention, but there's other interventions out there that We'd like to think they make a difference, but it's hard to prove. Um, I do have that unpopular task of getting us out of here on time. So I wanna give one more opportunity for you all to have the last word before I take us out. So I'll start with you, Frank. Do you have any last thoughts for our audience that they should take away as they're reading this study or maybe the next one that's coming? No, think about the procedure early. Uh, as you're doing your trauma assessment, if the patient has asymmetric breast sounds, if the patient has evidence of hemodynamic or, or compromise or hypoxia, uh, consider the procedure and, uh, you know, save some lives. Fabulous last words. And you, Josh, any last things that you think the audience needs to take away before we go? Yeah, I think, you know, the point about, you know, it's a diagnostic and therapeutic procedure and that, you know, I'll never be upset if I see somebody roll in with a decompression and, you know, because I think that the benefit outweighs the risk. And really now we can start to focus on how do we do this well? How do we train people uh, to do this to their, to their best of their ability at the top of their game and really save a lot of lives? Absolutely. And thank you both again for this wonderful study, all of the time and effort that went into it and in dealing with reviewer number three. We appreciate it. It has been wonderful. And I think this paper sets us up for so much more than just one intervention. Now we see there's some evidence in favor of an intervention. It's up to us to figure out the quality improvement aspects to get us to that best practice and to replicate these methods with other interventions. Uh, so thank you again. And thank you to our audience for all of your time and participation. I'll remind you that we will be back here with the next clinical podcast on October 10th. And we also have the education version of this research podcast. The next one will be Friday, September 23rd. So thank you all again. Look forward to seeing you the next time. Bye, guys. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at pcrfpodcast.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website, prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsors, Limmer Education, providing educational tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey and ESO, dedicated to improving community health and safety through the power of data. Mm -hmm.